All right, boys and girls, make sure you have your children's bulletin with you. Use that. You have your own translation in there. You have a place where you can ask us questions as well. We'll be continuing our journey next week. We'll actually be finishing it, uh, but we're not quite there yet. We're in Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 this morning. And before we go to God's Word, let's go together in prayer. <clears throat> oh, Father God, we do thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You have chosen to speak to Your people, that we may know You that we may know your ways and know your salvation and know Christ. Lord, we pray that you would help us to see all these things this morning by your Spirit. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's been said that money makes the world go round. And as much as we would like to try to make things more significant than that be that important, I think we recognize that, yeah... Money really does have that much importance in our lives. I mean, if I could just make a little bit more, I could get out of debt. I could go on that trip we've been wanting to go to. I could just get the pressure off. I could just get a little more. We've all thought things like that. It's been on the forefront of our mind at different parts of our lives and different times because financial things have a way of getting to the heart very, very quickly. In the heart of most Americans, in the heart of most Christian Americans, is a heart of fear and a heart of worry and a heart of anxiety. We, we addressed that last week. But there's another thing money and our culture together with money reveal about our hearts. And that's most of us struggle either with anxiety, or not either, we struggle with anxiety, and we struggle with contentment. That's the issue Paul takes on in this passage now. And in doing so, he uses a very famous verse. Many of us know this verse, many of us use this verse, and I'm going to tell you right now, we use it incorrectly, hence the title of the sermon. And we use it incorrectly, and we rob the truth of its power. But once we get what he's actually saying, there's so much hope available to us. Hope to be the peaceful, content people we hope and wish we were. So with that in mind, let's go together and look at God's Word. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need i can do all things through him who strengthens me and this is god's word so here's where we're going to go today as you know i like to tell you where we're going to go before we get there so you maybe pay attention better you want to remember what the sermon was about you can write this down and use this maybe as you talk about it over lunch here's what we're talking about today being on the same team is great but it only happens when Christians are made content by Christ's strength. Again, being on the same team is great, 
But that only happens when Christians are made content by Christ's strength. As, as the church rejoices in a unity, basically, when we live in contentment. But unity and contentment are only possible by, by the power of Christ. And that's what Paul is going to tell us today. So let's jump in together and see what Paul is going to tell us. First thing we see is Paul talks about the joy of harmony in God's people. Earlier in Philippians, if you remember, Paul has instructed them to rejoice in the Lord always. And we reminded the kids in the kids' translation that always means always, not sometimes. And so the command is to rejoice in the Lord always. And he now follows that up by showing them he's going to follow his own instructions. He's going to do that. The Philippian church, if you remember the context for Philippians, had sent their pastor, a man named Epaphroditus, to come visit Paul while he was in prison. And in the Roman prison system, if you were kind of more of a, in our terms we would say maybe a white-collar criminal, which is what Paul was at this point. He wasn't an armed rebellion. He was just, his ideas and the gospel could have been seditious. And so Let's just keep him under wraps for a while. If you were more of a white-collar, nonviolent criminal, you had to pay your own expenses in prison. He was under house arrest. He had to pay rent at that house. He had to pay for his food. He had to pay for his lodgings. And the historical sources are mixed. He may have even had to pay for the soldiers who had to guard him. But that's a lot of money for a prisoner. And, you know, you're obviously not out working if you're under house arrest. So what are you going to do? Well, this church had sent Paul a financial gift to help cover his expenses while he was under house arrest. And so he basically writes this letter of Philippians to thank them for doing that. Now many, when they see this and they read Paul saying, hey, finally at length you've started to do this again, they, they see a rebuke as if Paul is saying, well, finally you're doing it. But that's not what he's doing. He's rejoicing not over the money. He's rejoicing over their uh, revival of concern is what he says. Revival is a gardening word from that culture. What he's saying is they were blossoming again. We don't go to a rose bush in our yard in December and get upset at the thing for not having big, bright, bushy roses on it, right? Because it's not its season. And that's what Paul is saying here. It wasn't your season. I wasn't mad, but now you're blossoming again, and now you're seasoned, and you're fruitful, and I'm so happy that you've been revived, that you're fruitful again. That church hadn't abandoned Paul. They just weren't in season. They couldn't do it. They were in money troubles, actually. We know this from some of the other books, that the city of Philippi itself and the church specifically was having some serious problems. Second Corinthians chapter 11, actually, we find out they were a poor church, unlike the rich Corinthian church, and yet they were known for giving sacrificially. But for a time, they had just been simply unable to. The economy had been too bad. They just couldn't do it. Which, by the way, helps explain the anxiety from last week, right? Bad job market, not a lot of money, bills keep coming, equals anxiety. And so Paul writes to help them address that situation. And we can all look at our lives and see that. But now Paul says, God has brought you through your money troubles. God has revived you. And what did you do? You didn't sit back and hoard it. You gave it away again. They have been revived. They've flourished again. Oh, there's so much hope for us there if we just think about that for a second. The difficult parts of your life, especially the money stress, God can revive those too. God can fix that. You can flourish in Christ where right now you have stress in your life. You can. If, as we saw last week, you'll candidly take those things that stress you to God in prayer. Well, that's from last week. 
It gets even better this week because there's more going on here than just about money. And what does Paul actually rejoice? What is he happy about? Look with me at verse 10. He tells us what he's happy about. He says, look, you have revived your concern for me. See, the Philippians' concern for him was not flourishing, along with their money not flourishing, as it had been. They may not have been as on board with Paul as they were at one point. The word for concern is bigger than we think. It's actually been used throughout the book of Philippians for the idea of harmony, or the idea, we would say, of being on the same page. For example, just to take you through a journey through Philippians real quick, if you'll think back about a month ago to Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Those two underlined portions are what's translated as concern here. Philippians 2.5 says this, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he's saying concern, be concerned with each other just like Jesus is concerned for you. See, he's rejoicing because their renewed financial support indicates that they are still of one mind with him. They still have affection for him. They still have concern for him. Paul's source of joy is not the money. He rejoices in the harmony they have together. Let's look at one more just to help you see this. Philippians chapter 3 verse 19 says this about those who are walking away from Christ as their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Again, you guessed it, same word. They're concerned about earthly things. They're affectionate for earthly things. And so in 319, Paul is lamenting. He says this with tears, if you remember the the immediate preceding verse. He was heartbroken that people who had been part of the church were now falling so in love with the world they were walking away. Here he rejoices because their financial gift shows the exact opposite. They love him. They love Christ. They love the mission of the gospel and so they've revived their concern for being part of the team. It's a beautiful thing that Paul says, I rejoice not in your money, but your hearts. We're on the same team for Christ. Boys and girls, I want you to get this. So if you would, would you look with me at your uh, verse 10? Here's what Paul's telling this church. He says this. He says, I was so happy that y'all could finally help me again. I know you cared for me, but you just now had the chance to show it. See, boys and girls, you know how mom and dad love you and care for you. You know that. But they can be busy, can't they? And they, they sometimes don't always show how much they love you because life happens. And isn't it nice when mom and dad just stop and just pay attention to you? That's what Paul is saying here. You just stopped and paid attention to me. You just showed me that you care for me. And it makes him so happy. He can feel that they care for him. That's what Paul is saying. That, cons- that harmony makes him rejoice. But there's more, even better. God's Word has a lot more to show us about Paul's rejoicing here because being on the same team is great, but it only happens when Christians are made content by the power of Christ. So let's see what that looks like. What is the peace of contentment? Paul zooms in on our hearts now in verse 11. Verse 11 basically begins with Paul saying, look, it's not about the money. Paul wants to be clear. He is not anxious for their support. He says he's content. 
He is applying the promised peace of God. Remember last week, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That peace of God, Paul is saying, you know what that looks like in your life? It's called contentment. Paul is saying, I have that peace. I am content. I am not anxious about your gift. Contentment is what it looks like. When the peace of God is living in our lives. Contentment is being free from circumstances. Contentment is not keeping the status quo, settling for second best. Oh, I'm, I'm content. Turning down opportunities. Oh, no, I'm, I'm content. Letting others walk on you. No, it's okay. I'm, that is not Christian contentment. Paul wants his readers, which is us, to live faithfully in their culture. And their culture told them that inner peace, contentment, being well, came from being an independent, isolated individual who did not need anybody else. That was their culture. The solitary person standing strong was the ideal model of contentment. Yes, they said, have friends, but don't need friends. In fact, the wise, content man eschews friendship is what some of their philosophers would say. Which makes sense now. Oh, no wonder this church in Philippi is struggling with unity and getting along with each other. Because if your whole culture says being an independent island is where contentment is, that makes it really hard to work together, doesn't it? You see other people as obstacles to peace. It's hard to be on the same team. They had been blinded by their culture's idea of contentment. Where have we been blinded by our culture's idea of contentment? To help us see that, I want to tell you a parable. I found this online in two different places. I couldn't confirm the names actually used in it, so we're just going to call it a parable. I don't know if this actually happened. Let's caveat that. Several, several years ago, before everybody started doing it, an American company got the idea, hey, if we move our manufacturing down to South America, we can pay them beans, but they're, they're, they're used to getting bean. We pay them beans, they'll be really happy, and we'll save so much money that it'd be great. Our stockholders will love it. Let's do that. So they moved their manufacturing process down to a South American country. And the workers got trained. The workers were happy. They're making more money than they ever thought of. The management's happy because they're paying their workers less than they ever thought they could get away with. And it's, everything's going great until the first pay period. After the first pay period, the next day, no one shows up for work. What happened? Well, it turns out they, they, they went around and talked to some of the people in the villages. It turns out these men and women, mostly men, had come and they had made so much money that it would support them and their needs for months. And so they're like, well, why do I need to go back to work? I'm good for a couple months. So the management, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? And so they said, here's what we're going to do. And so they called up a, a, another corporate partner, paid for the shipping, and all of a sudden in every worker's house a free Sears and Robux catalog showed up. Within a couple weeks, people started to trickle back into work. Pretty soon, the place was going gangbusters again. Why? Because all of a sudden, their needs changed. They were no longer content because they, these things exist. All of a sudden, they were discontent, and so they went back to work to get things that they didn't know existed before, and now they have to have. Do I even need to apply that? I mean, a consumerism-based economy is based on discontentment, right? 
advertising exists to destroy contentment. That's its job. Facebook, in many ways, exists to destroy contentment because what do we do? Let's take the best, most idealized, cutest, neatest, funniest parts of our lives, you know, the things that happen like once every three days, and let's put that on there as if it happens every day all the time. And this is my life. Aren't I wonderful? And you read that, you're like, well, my life stinks. I got to make up some stuff too. Okay. I wonder if they're making it up. We never think that, do we? See, all this stuff in our culture exists to destroy our contentment. Think of the pressure you feel. Everybody around me is doing better than I am. Don't raise your hands, but I bet a lot of you feel that way. Maybe it's finances, maybe it's professionally, maybe it's the car you live, the house you live in, whatever, retirement savings, whatever. Everybody's doing better than I am in this area. That is our culture. Our culture depends upon that. And we bring that into the church, don't we? And God's word knows this is going to happen. So look how real Paul gets with me in verse 12. Look how real this is. Paul says, look, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. See, in our culture, in good or in bad, we are not content. When things are going great, we want things to be better. When things are going bad, we want things to be better. We're never content. Now, when you read that, though, you hear Paul say, man, I know how to be brought low. We're like, yeah, I get that. And I know how to abound. Many of you are thinking right now, please, dear God, give me the trial of figuring out how to abound. Please, oh, bless me financially so much, I just don't know what to do with all this money. Will you please give me that trial? That would be great. Right? I know you're thinking that. But don't be fooled. This contentment abounds in all aspects of our lives as americans it's in the air of the culture we we live in from the time we're in diapers we breathe this contentment telling us be unhappy with what you have there's a famous philosopher alexander solzhenitsyn he was a soviet soldier in world war ii and he was kind of a, a writer and he um well, don't read that yet. No, I'm, I've got to build up to it. Okay, so anyway, he wrote a letter to a friend kind of, kind of criticizing the Soviet government, which is a big no-no, and so he was put in prison. He was put in a gulag as a Soviet soldier, and he was there for 25 years or so in the Soviet gulag system. He was, he was released, and because he would not stop criticizing the Soviet government, and because he was famous, they, instead of killing him, they exiled him. So he was exiled. He spent his time in Europe and some time in America, and he became one of the best philosophers of freedom in the 20th century. And I want to share one of his observations about our culture from a total outsider. Look what he says as one who was in prison in the Soviet system. Here's what he says about us. The constant desire to have still more things and a still better life and the struggle to obtain them imprints many Western faces with worry and even depression, though it is customary to conceal such feelings. And he said that in 1978. Boy, did he nail us or what? Isn't that crazy? That's why financially blessed people are still not content. That's why Paul tells them he has learned. He knows how to be prosperous and be content and how to be poor and be content. Because the original readers and us, we need to hear that from the Apostle Paul, and we need to see that contentment in his life because contentment's hard. And so he's teaching them contentment. He's modeling them contentment as well. In, in verse 10, remember, Paul is writing from a prison. 
He's showing gratitude. He's rejoicing. And he's saying, I'm, I'm so glad you sent me a gift. I didn't need it. I didn't want it. But hey, I'm, I'm glad you have it. I'm content to take it. He shows gratitude. Which, by the way, is a great way, if you want to have more contentment in your life, start showing gratitude for everything. He wants them to have unity in their congregation, peace in their lives. And so he says, let's start driving out that discontentment, first of all, with gratitude. That's the idea, by the way, behind this, the phrase you hear a lot, preach the gospel to yourself daily. The whole idea about that is for us to express gratitude. If you remember your sin and your alienation from a holy God, and you remember that he has overcome both of those by the blood of his son received by faith. There is not of works, nothing you could do. And you preach that to yourself and say, well, I am a forgiven child of God because of his grace and mercy alone. That goes a long way towards cultivating contentment and gratitude. You know what else helps? Being honest, being candid. Paul uses very descriptive language here to show that he really gets, he knows the ups and downs of life. He gets it. I want us to all understand that, so let's all look together at the kids' translation of verse 12. Here's kind of what Paul is really saying. He says this, he says, I know how to be okay when things are hard and when things are great. I know the trick to being okay with a full belly or an empty one, having a lot of money or very little. That's what Paul is saying. That's how practical. Look, I know what it's like to be full and stuffed. I know what it's like to be really hungry. I know what it's like for my wallet to be full and stuffed and for my wallet to be really hungry. He's been there. And in all those, he is content. Now, at the time Paul wrote this, Stoic philosophy was all the rage. Stoic philosophy, most of us learned that word at some point in our life. Basically, they taught, in a nutshell, to ignore your circumstances, suppress your emotions, and have peace. In other words, lie to yourself and fake it, and you'll be peaceful, which is what so many people today still try. But that's not Christian contentment. Even here in the South, where we're all about keeping up appearances, and it's very attractive for us to lie to ourselves and others, and I'm happy, I'm good. If we're going to have contentment, if we're going to have unity and harmony, we have to be honest about the things that make us discontent. Honest to God about them. The things we wish we had in our life, the things we wish we didn't have in our life. As we were instructed last week, we take those candidly to God in prayer. And his peace will come when we honestly evaluate our lives before him and say, this is stressing me out. I'm not content. I really want this. I know I don't need it, but I want it. Will you help me be content? That way we can have unity and harmony together in Christ. Because we are content. And if we're not content, we'll never have unity. But Paul says there's even more to having harmony and contentment. There's actually a secret to both harmony and contentment. So do you want to be content? Do you want to have peace? God's word says there's a secret. And then God's word gives the secret. But we miss it because we Christians have taken the secret, we've ripped it out of its context, and we've applied it to everything except contentment, and so we've lost its power. So do you want the secret? You ready for the secret to contentment? Here's the secret. Look with me, the last part of verse 12, starting in verse 13. Here's what Paul says. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him 
who strengthens me. Did you catch it? Did you catch the secret? Again, I want you to look back at the title of this sermon. Because it's about verse 13. You're using it wrong. Verse 13 is a specific solution to the problem of contentment. It is not a promise that you can do everything through Jesus Christ. You can't. <gasps> yeah, I said it. And I can show you from the Greek. It's not what he's saying. A rigid, literal translation of verse 13. You ready? Here's what a very rigid, literal translation of verse 13 would be. It says, I prevail in that stuff through the one empowering me. That's what verse 13 is saying. He's not saying, hey, you go after that promotion, man. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. Eh, that's not what God's word says. God's word says contentment is probably the battle of your life as a Christian in this culture. And you can do it through Jesus Christ because he's inside of you and he will strengthen you. Kids, I want you to get this. So look with me at your verse 13 because this is important. Here's what Paul is saying. Paul says this. Here's the secret. I have strengthened those things because Jesus gives me power on the inside. So boys and girls, do you want to be happy? Do you want to be strong on the inside? Then place your faith in Jesus as Lord, and he will give you power on the inside. That's what Paul says. You can be happy from the inside out because Christ empowers you to do it. Adults, verse 13 is the secret to contentment in case you've missed it. Next time you feel discontent, next time you feel it's not settled, that's when you quote Philippians 4.13 to yourself. Not when you're trying to run that extra mile in your workout. Not when you're trying to overcome this problem in your life. Not, no. This verse is about contentment. When it's struggling and you don't want to, Lord, give me strength because I believe I can have strength in this battle because you're inside of me. Again, I know. Maybe you don't believe me. Let's, let's, let's look at someone who's older, wiser, smarter, and more godly. Doesn't get much better than that, Right? I want you to hear what the uh, former pastor, now retired of First Pres Columbia, and one of my former professors also, Sinclair Ferguson, here's what he says about this. Do not isolate these words from their context. Paul is not saying that he could do anything to which he set his mind. The all things refers in the first place to coping with need or plenty. That's the secret to contentment. I can have strength in need or plenty through Jesus who lives inside of me, who empowers me. See, it's important we get that because contentment is a big deal. We need to have the very power of Christ in our life to have contentment because everything around us wants us to be discontent. Don't overlook, though, the first part of the verse, how active it is as well. Paul says, I can do, or we could translate it, I prevail, or we could say, I am strong, or he might be saying, I have power. Paul is not letting go and letting God with verse 13. He is active in pursuing Christ and being content in Christ. He's working hard to be content, recognizing it's based in Christ's strength. This whole letter of Philippians really is about Christians grabbing hold of the truth of the gospel and then living an active, robust faith. It really is about Paul saying, take the things in your life that are hurting your faith, that are hampering your joy that are hindering your contentment and recognize that you have power in those things through jesus christ i want to give you very quickly we'll go over this in one slide 
an overview to show you what I mean by Paul's talking about here in, in Philippians. Philippians 2.5, we saw, he says what? Have the mind of Christ. Then he tells us in Philippians, we, we don't have it? Okay. And he tells us in Philippians 2.12, we're supposed to work out our salvation. And he tells us in Philippians 3.13, we're supposed to chase after Christ. Then he tells us in Philippians 4.1, stand firm. Then he tells us in Philippians 4.6, don't be anxious. If you look over the book of Philippians, there is a lot of work commanded. There's a lot of activity for Christians to do in this letter. And so now as he's wrapping up, he wants to be clear that all of that activity is based on grace. Verse 13 will absolutely not let us think, Christ saved me, so I better, you know, suck it up and make sure I'm faithful. I better start working hard. It's not what verse 13 is saying. No. Verse 13 is the culmination of Paul's teaching throughout this epistle. Paul is saying this throughout the whole book of Philippians. Take this wonderful gospel and apply it daily to your life and your struggles. Live out a robust faith in the wonder and the junk of life, and you will be content. Take the gospel in the wonders of your life, and you'll be content. Take the gospel in the struggles of your life, and you'll be content. And you'll have a robust, real, vivacious faith. You will have peace. You'll have contentment through the power of Christ in your life. That's what Paul is saying here. So as we wrap this up, the reason that the Philippians were not chasing after Christ with passion, remember all of chapter 3 was him trying to get them to do that. The reason they're not chasing after Christ with passion, and instead they're having disunity, they're having arguments, is because they were either anxious or they were discontent. Probably both. And they're both heart issues from not focusing on Christ and the gospel. God's word is clear. Our contentment is from Christ. His grace implants contentment in us. The Holy Spirit grows it in us. Christ brings it to fruition through us. We exercise it like a muscle. So all of Paul's urgings towards a more robust faith, towards an active faith, are rooted in one scary truth. Life is supposed to make us discontent. That's one of the reasons we struggle with contentment so much. We keep thinking, if I could just get to the point where I could be content and happy, then I can rest. And we keep searching for that point. You're never going to find it. And once you realize that, you'll stop getting discouraged that you finally overcome one obstacle, and you're like, I'm still not happy and content. Where did this come from? But once you realize you're always going to be discontent, that's why you need Christ's strength in these things, empowering you. That's why verse 13 is so vital. You apply it to the battle of your heart's contentment because you never will be content in this life outside of Christ. So we will either flee to Christ in the spirit of verse 13, looking for His power and find our contentment in Him or... We will do something else. And what, unfortunately, we tend to do is we try to play it both ways. We want Christ for eternal security and peace. But we also try to find peace and happiness through this life right now. We try to play it both, both ways. So we faithfully go to church, and we're good citizens. We're not blatantly immoral. 
But our faith doesn't really make that much of a difference the rest of the week because that's not where we're anchored. We're looking at how the world tells us to be happy and content. And so still, like the rest of our culture who doesn't know Christ, we find ourselves going, oh, if my kids could just get into this college, I'd be happy. If they play on this team, I'll be, be happy. If I get this job, I'll be at rest. If I could get into this neighborhood, I've arrived. If I could have those friends, if I can have those things, I'll be happy and I'll be content. And we miss it. It's when those thoughts come into your brain that you claim verse 13 and say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content where I am right now. Only through Christ, because I'm not. That's the power of 413 when you use it right. And if you don't do that, all of those thoughts of your kids, sports teams, what's neighborhood you're going to get into, the right college, the right social group, you will just be a born-again Christian who's just a riddled mess of anxiety and discontentment. Where's the joy in that? But you can let it go. Look to Christ. Dear Christian, if you find yourself with that kind of discontentment, let that unhappiness drive you to the cross. What we're looking for in this life, what we think will make us happy and content, what we're searching for that's right outside of our grasp is the fullness that is available to us through a robust, real relationship with Jesus Christ. Oh, if you want to be content, you must be rooted in Christ. Even now, repent of your love for the world. See it for what it is. Turn back to your Savior and place your faith and trust in Him yet again. Give Him your very heart and you will find contentment. And for those of you here who don't know Christ, don't believe the lie of our culture about never being content, always having to have more. And don't just trust me to point that out to you. I want to go back to our friend Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who makes a very powerful point to those who don't yet know Christ. Here's what he says. He says this. He says, If humanism were right in declaring that man is born to be happy, he would not be born to die. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. It cannot be the unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. See what he's saying there? He's saying that there is a fundamental discontent at the root of our culture. Especially since our culture says in writing one of the purposes of life is what? The pursuit of happiness. Such a culture can't fulfill that. Because deep down you know you're going to die one day and that's not a happy thought. And that makes you unhappy and discontent. You can't ever find it. See, but Jesus Christ was content to die for his people. He was raised to set them free from that fear of death. To give them hope. To give them peace. To give his people contentment. And Jesus Christ can do that for you. Simply place your faith and trust in him. Seek after happiness and peace in him. And you will find it. Let's pray together. Father God.